Thanks, Greg. Well, we come to the end of a series in Romans, started in early February, and uh, here we are. Um, let's pray as we come to it. Father, we thank you for this journey this year. We've uh, been led by you through and on, we, um, recognizing our need, recognizing our part in the world's problems. We th- recognize the sinfulness of our own hearts, our personal need for your intervention and your kindness and grace. And we pray that today as we reflect back on 16 chapters of good news that um, our hearts will be filled and your spirit will give us a new loyalty for you and uh, service of you. And we rejoice that you hold us and your grip of us is much stronger than ours of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Major John Sedgwick was the highest-ranking Union officer killed during the American Civil War, just before he was shot by a sniper's bullet. Legend has it that his last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. <laughs> last words are often memorable, and people are more attentive when they sense these are the last words a prime minister conceding election defeat or a celebrity or sports captain announcing retirement. Perhaps some of us spending time with a grandma or granddad on their deathbed and realising this is the last time we'll speak with them. Since we launched this series back in February, God has encouraged and taught us through a letter that is 7,111 words in length. A typical college essay that I used to mark might be something like two to 3,000 words. This is an extended work a world-changing message. And today, brings, uh, Paul brings all of it together with the last of those words. What will Paul's final words be? How can you bring together such an enormous message with such importance for the world? Well, two simple but vital things that are there in your outlines if you're following. Firstly, stay true to the God who's got you. Verses 17 to 24. And then the gist of the final verses, all glory to the God who strengthens you. Stay true to the God who's got you, all glory to the God who strengthens you. First then, verses 17 to 24. How are we going to stay true to the God who's got you? How how are we to do that? Well, Paul uses that favorite word that he uses so much in his letters of he urges. It's a softer, nicer word than command, I think. There's a, there's a relationship in it. There's a desire in it. He urges us to, to watch out, to keep away, second, and to be wise, third. Stay true to the God, God who's got you by watching out, keeping away, and being wise. Verse 17, we see some of these come out. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Now, perhaps it doesn't sound very Christian to you uh, that that Christians are to watch out for certain people or to keep away, or the translation can be shun as well, certain people. But what is Christian and what is right in God's eyes surely has to be informed by God's word. Jesus, who teaches us to love our enemies, is the same man who teaches us not to be naive or led astray by those who would do so. Jesus and Paul weren't talking about well-meaning lost people, 
but those who put poison in the well of living water. I don't know what your experiences have been of these kinds of influences in church life. Um, I've seen people in Christian institutions subvert authority. I've seen those create factions that justify sinful behaviour for some personal cause. I've seen some at Christian conferences, academic conferences, teach from the Bible in a real smarty-pants kind of way intended to undermine the faith of simple believers. One translation says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you've learned. Yes, in Romans 15, Paul urges us already to bear with and accept and love one another with the freedom we enjoy. But here he's saying, watch out for those who have divisive effects on the churches. I heard of one disgruntled pastor on a pastoral team do this as well, saying to a group of loyal followers in his church, let's go and start a church down the road. Our leadership isn't giving us what we want, so we'll start our own church. Come and join us. It'll be a church for the young and the dynamic people like you. We'll get rid of the long prayers and the liturgy and any traces of boring tradition. No denominations to worry about. We'll just be a fresh, missional, relevant Jesus community. And so that troubled church began with that motive, a sense of rebellion and historical arrogance. A, church, a flock is divided. Some of them going to be misled, uh, would be misled. And one step closer, to perhaps, to being in no church at all if this unsettling initiative goes wrong. The circumstances, the temptations, the lovelessness, the motives... The personalities all may differ from circumstance to circumstance, but Paul's forewarning is quite general, and that is to make all Christians forearmed. Paul describes them further. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by listening to the initiative, you might sense something isn't right there. These aren't the concerns of Jesus that are troubling you or are motivating you. He goes on, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, he continues, so I rejoice because of you. But to avoid being innocent and gullible, Paul says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent, that is pure, untainted, unmixed, uncontaminated about what is evil. Christian innocence isn't gullibility. Paul's instructions are close to Jesus when he said to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves at the same time. Wise about what is good. That is, I think we focus on the countless good things that come with creation and come with Christ. But our wisdom about the good means we are also awake up to what sin is and sin's consequences not so soft and fluffy that just everything's okay and we're keeping the peace at all costs. The innocent about what is evil, not toying with it, not indulging in it, not interested in acquiring a taste for it or numbing our consciences against it. And in this world, the pressure to affirm all kinds of what the Bible would call wrong is, is enormous. Christian teenagers, I really feel for them, they they can be told, well, unless you affirm, you're hating me. 
at an age where friendships are so important they can lose their friendship group simply by withholding affirmation about something they think is destructive. Nevertheless, Christians are to be salt and light by being distinct and awake and wise about what is good and what is not, innocent about what is evil. Um, It's very easy for this confusion of our culture to enter into church life as well, and church leaders can feel very pressured to keep up with the culture and society's shifting beliefs. But if it's contrary to God's word, these voices have to be resisted. As one author put it, behind all human attempts to turn the church aside from its path stands the lurking figure of Satan. So while it might seem just very earthly and cultural, there's a spiritual element to it. And Paul's going to get to that shortly. But watch out, keep away, and be wise. Stay true to the God who's got you. Satan's time of influence the appeal of his temptations, the effectiveness of the bait that is currently being used, the disorder and chaos he seeks for churches is temporary. And so verse 20 then is a comfort, which brings this identity of Satan into the foreground. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's an interesting sentence, isn't it? Someone said to me this week, you wouldn't normally hold together the God of peace with crushing something. But the God of peace, this God of order and righteousness and peace, shalom, will one day, for the sake of that shalom, that peace, soon, it says, from God's point of view, remove all threats and disruptors of peace. And so while chaos may seem to reign in our world, disease, distrust, war and despair and social disintegration, disintegration, it seems, culturally in America and Australia, where we don't know which way is up, The world seems to be powerless against evil and ruin. But our our creator who said, let there be light, is the God-man who says, it is finished. He will establish peace, having already left Satan mortally wounded. Luther brings these things together, Christ's victory on the cross and Satan's claim upon us in uh, this, this hymn. I'll read a verse of it. Hear the true Paschal, the Passover lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See his blood above our door. Faith points to it, points to it, death passes over, and Satan cannot harm us. Hallelujah. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, God told us that the seed of Eve, a descendant of his, will crush the serpent Satan's head. And this, adds Paul here, will be under the church's feet. Christ, the head of the church, with Satan under our feet. We, the church, have a share in Satan's defeat. We tread down the devil's influence with our choice of good over evil. We share a gospel powerful to release souls from Satan's grip. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And in the next breath, the other side of this victory coin says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I'm not sure any sweeter words could be spoken than this blessing, this prayer, this statement. For those who understand it, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 
There's a crushing victory in the first half of verse 20. And then there seems this light, harmless, seemingly harmless Jesus in the second half. But it could be said that it's the same grace of Jesus in the second half that is crushing Satan for us in the first half. The Son of God is strong, victorious, powerful beyond words, heavy, we might say, in holiness and power and glory and gravity. And yet the same man, the God incarnate, is the Jesus who is light of touch, kinder than kind, the friend of the worst sinners, gentle and humble in spirit, who tenderly cares about the heavy loads you carry. Your rest, your God of peace, your happiness, your lightness of step, even in the worst arena Satan can throw at you. And there are people in tough arenas in this church going through terrible things. Nevertheless, we are weak, but he is strong. And so we can say we are strong because he is strong. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This assures us that our place in heaven does not rest on our shoulders, but on his. And he's done it. It will be with his might, not yours, that you will stay true to the God who's got you. He's holding you. His grip of you is the grip that counts. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul's second point in his final words makes this even clearer for us. All glory to the one who strengthens you. Now to him who is able to strengthen or establish you. God's business is establishing Christians, strengthening us making us strong and firm, like a tree planted by streams of water. That's that health image of humanity that God offers. And so let's be a community cooperating with God's strengthening work in us. Otherwise, by default, the words of one author might describe us when it's written, most adults are busily engaged in getting themselves a good job, a home of their own, a plan to a plan for their children's education or retirement plan. People seek to establish themselves according to career, family and financial security. God, however, is committed to establishing people according to the gospel. God is committing, committed to establishing people according to the gospel. So let's want what God wants for us and around us. This spiritual reinforcement work. Paul wanted to visit Rome. When I went to Rome, I wanted to see the sights and have a good time, have the gelato. When Paul goes to visit Rome in chapter 1, it's not primarily to see the sights. He writes it's to strengthen believers. That same work of God is on the heart of Paul. And perhaps some of you, we've heard of Adam this morning and his amazing voluntary contribution to the church. Many of us around the church contribute in so many rich ways. This, I hope will encourage you to see the value of that work and Christian ministry as a great privilege. Work done inside the church, work done in your workplaces as well. Verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the gospel that not only promises this strengthening and establishing, but delivers upon it. And notice verse 25 that God's gospel, Paul calls my gospel. He begins the letter talking about God's gospel. He finishes it talking about my gospel, the gospel of which Paul is unashamed 
The gospel, he says, verse 25, I proclaim. This is my gospel. I grew up in a Methodist come uniting church and we would sing the, the hymn, the Blessed Assurance. And Blessed Assurance reads like this. It takes Jesus and the gospel very personally. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my saviour all the day long. God establishes the church as God's revealed gospel because Paul's, uh, sorry, God establishes the church through a revealed gospel that God then proclaims. It becomes a proclaimed gospel, proclaimed by Paul and now proclaimed by the church. If Australia is to hear from God's voice, it will be through the church. Right now in our nation, we're talking about the voice Australia needs or doesn't need, depending on the way you vote. It's very clear the voice Australia needs is God's voice. And the only way the nation will hear of God's voice is through people like you and me. God's gospel must become our gospel if our friends are to hear it. Last Friday night, I was out uh, having dinner at a school event and I was talking to someone who works in the city, but he's got a hobby farm. And on that hobby farm, he's trying to make an, an organic farm. And he's in the process, and he said as he's trying to use alternative ways to keep insects away and mould away, he's, he was just blown away by the way nature works. And if I plant this, that puts this in the soil, and that keeps that insect away. And if I plant this alongside that, that brings out health here. We've had insects coming back and small birds coming back. We've even had big birds coming back looking for the smaller birds. And he was clearly moved by the brilliance of creation and the way it's working so well together. And then the conversation came around to what I do and why I do it. And I said to him, we've just been talking about this amazing creation and the way we belong in it. Uh, I watched Attenborough documentaries and I'm just blown away by this. And I said, I'm in my role because I, I think for the wonder of what we see around us, there must be an explanation that is also wondrous. That this wonderful has come from something wonderful as well. And I know that wonderful to be God because he's revealed himself to us in this world. And he's made Jesus the face of God so that we can come to him. And as I started speaking about this, I had tear in my eye. I think he could see that and, and the earnestness with which I was speaking to him. And I take it Paul might have had tears in his eyes when writing verse 25. Because he knows the world no longer needs to be in the darkness it's in. No longer needs to be in darkness about our awesome, wise creator. He knows this gospel... He's reporting on events that have happened 20 years earlier. This gospel is the revelation of the mystery. Verse 25, hidden for long ages past, it was under a cloak. Hundreds, even thousands of hints given through the prophets of the Old Testament about what God was going to do. But no clear picture until someone like Paul comes along and tells the world what it's all about. What Jesus' arrival has accomplished even Jesus spoke through parables and 
often wasn't as clear as Paul could later be looking back. But verse 26, now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. In these coming holidays, we're going to enjoy Jesus' parables. In in the holidays, and then next term, look back at some of these Old Testament prophets that are pointing us in a veiled way to Jesus so we can enjoy them. But through these prophetic writings, verse 26, by the command, the decision, the good pleasure, at the chosen timing of the eternal God, God chooses us. His Spirit leads us to obey God by believing. And our belief leads us to further pursue this obedient way of life. We're becoming in practice the righteous people that God forever declares us to be. Often it seems we just go along for the ride as Christians. But this kind of writing explains what's going on. That's why you want to be at church. That's why the Bible's relevant to you. That's why you have this desire to pray and call upon God for change. It's fulfilling, verse 26, so that all Gentiles, all nations, people even in Australia, might come to the obedience of faith. It's no wonder then that Paul concludes this vast vision. We zoomed in last week to individuals, we zoom out this week to this plan of God that spans all ages. Verse 27, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. This word glory here is a big one in the Bible. It's hard to define. Something like God's godness. May we in creation recognize God's godness His holiness, mercy, power, strength, majesty, these other big words that are caught up in it, his glorious, perfect, infinite self. To the only wise God be glory attributed to him through Jesus Christ. How satisfying then to write that 7,111th word, Amen. A Hebrew word meaning truly or indeed, yes. Stay true to the God who's got you. All glory to the God who establishes you. Friends, if there are any of you here who have not yet come to Jesus, I'd love for you to realize, until you sink in with Jesus, it's like you're expecting, you're operating against the song of the universe. God's plan is no less than a new universe for a new humanity. But to miss it is to experience his judgment, his wrath upon sin forever. The stakes are very high with God. If voices in your head are saying you're better off without Jesus, take those headphones off and hear his voice this morning call your name into his eternal life. Whether you've been a Christian for a short time or long, may God's gospel for you Be my gospel that I proclaim about Jesus Christ. May you be proclaimers in your circle of friends, those you might have dinner with, those who transparently credit God in chats with family and friends. May you be a person whose kindness speaks of something foreign to those you're speaking with. I rejoice in the way God's been strengthening us as a church individually and together. Uh, One example, our youth ministry. Isn't it great? We've got 23 high schoolers away and eight committed leaders 
to them. Uh, The theme they're looking at this weekend, by the way, is influence. Who is influencing them and how might they be an influence to others? It's a question this chapter, I think, leads us to as well. May we be very consciously influenced by the God of this gospel and of this faithful community. Of all the influences out there, let us have God as our chief influence and this community enriching us. And secondly, to be very consciously an influencer for the kingdom of heaven in our community. People have no idea of this vision of God. People have no idea what God has done for the world. And it's our privilege to spill the beans, to let it out, to let them know of hope in a hopeless world. God's gospel, my gospel. Stay true to the one who's got you. All glory to the God who establishes you. Amen.